Um, I have a greater appreciation for flat roads and no potholes. Uh, I've confronted my fear of heights, and I have found out I am still terribly afraid of heights. Um, I love this. Uh, Ask Christian if anything I'm saying makes any sense. Uh, It's our new inside joke that I will forever cherish, and it's an amazing story of a misunderstanding that was just awesome. Um, So I would tell you also what it was like to finally get to meet the orphan that our family uh, sponsors and what it's been like to watch her grow up. Um, Usually usually I don't start getting teared up to the the end. Um, I would tell you about their water source. It's a two-foot-wide stream that's thousands of feet recessed into the jungle mountain that feeds their whole village and an orphanage uh, with that water. Um, so beyond the scenery of rolling rivers through valleys and beautiful mountain, uh, mountain peaks is the most important thing of all, and it's the people. Uh, my father told me once, uh, he said, Austin, the greatest adventure you can ever go on is the one of following Jesus. And it's amazing to see the gospel's redemptive love at work. The children who are once abused and abandoned are now, are now cared for, playing and in school, able to be free from this oppression in both Uh, It's both the burden and the joy that the directors, uh, Fidel and Charito, carry every day running this orphanage in the midst of raising their own family that spurs my faith just remembering. Among these children is the staff at CASA, um, and it seemed obvious. They are in dire need of a savior, not because of their humble circumstance, but because of their intimate knowledge of the pain and suffering brought to their door every day. There is a beautiful irony that you can't help but notice. In a place that receives the unwanted, the neglected, and the abused, there's a deep joy. Not a happiness that's fleeting, but a joy that is full of meaning in the Holy Spirit. It amazed me to find out that most Bolivian orphans had no contact with their orphanages and the staff after leaving. Worse, 94% of orphans ended up on the streets after leaving the orphanage. So many charities fail on the follow-through. They do some practical project to get the social media post to raise funds. Learning a little bit about this problem, it tempts my heart to become jaded, and it was probably God's gentle healing of my heart for me to see something different here at CASA. At CASA, there is a follow-through. A portion is called fase dos, which means phase two. Orphans that age out of CASA are able to move to the capital of La Paz and receive higher education with the support of their CASA family. We met young adults changing their future to becoming nurses, engineers, doctors, dentists, and more. Yet the future of this program is uncertain. Phase two was recently in danger of being shut down because of the lack of funding and SAT staffing. Fidel, um, one of the directors, uh, his oldest son, Abdiel, who we, I, we nicknamed as of this tour or this uh, trip, the, uh, the savage servant. Uh, He decided to move to the capital of La Paz to work for free to keep Phase 2 operational. And it's an encouragement for me seeing his sacrifice as he follows Jesus on his own adventure. Um, So Fidel and Charito's children are like big brothers and sisters and mentors to many of the orphans as they grow up. This reminds me of uh, when my parents went through their divorce. I have parents, but in this time of struggle, I found that God had provided me with many surrogate brothers and sisters, moms and dads. Some of them are here in this room today, and I am the fruit of your ministry. At Casa, this situation is so real that some of the orphans are given the last name of Esperanza, which means hope, which is the name of the orphanage. One day we went to the director's home. Fidel and Charito shared about the day 
today operations and logistics, daily grind to be faithful to the little ones, God has them steward. If I had traveled the whole way just to be a fly on the wall for this brief conversation, it would have been worth it. This is where faith is confronted by works. Now I can tell you that their faith is not dead. It is very alive. I would like to leave you with a story from that day that describes the day-to-day challenges their team faces. Being a father of girls, this affected me deeply. In 2020, Costa received three very small sisters. One of the Costa workers, called Tia's, which means aunt, was asked on the first day by one of the three little sisters, do the men workers at the orphanage have to touch us while we are here? The Costa staff quickly learned these girls came from a home where they were abused by their uncles, brothers, and father. The generational abuse was so bad that the mother was actively grooming the children to be used by the men in the family. Now, the children are free from abuse, they're cared for, they're prayed for, they're studying in school, and playing together like the children God made them to be in their new family. Their road to healing will be a journey, but it's one they will have a whole church, a house of hope alongside them. This is Casa Esperanza. This is a pure religion. This is our Lord's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. <sighs> Sorry, guys. <clears throat> if you're praying about giving, I'd say it's an internal investment. If you're praying about going, I would encourage you to go. If you think, if you think of CASA, please pray for them. Pray for the staff. Pray for the orphans. For my family, this experience was just the first step on a new adventure that God has next for us. I'd like to leave you with this verse. It's Psalm 10, 13 through 15. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account, but God you see. For you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his evil wickedness to account till you find none. All right. Um, <laughs> so, um, thank you, Austin, for sharing. I was uh, just so thankful to see how God brings people places and then immediately uses and moves their heart uh, to to meet the needs. And so, Austin and JD both were used by the Lord in their time there. And uh, like he said, I, I would encourage you next year as we go. Would you consider going? Would you start praying today uh, so that we would go uh, next year? Um, with that said, let me move us along. Uh, uh, it is my joy today to bring the word to you guys. Uh, but before I do that, I do have a couple, two little things I want to mention really quick. Uh, here at Trinity, um, our discipleship uh, or our, our, the, our means of discipleship is basically like a three-legged stool, if you will. Uh, we have three important parts uh, that we see as basic to our discipleship. Uh, number one of them is the, the preaching of the word from here, from this pulpit, Sunday to Sunday. Number two uh, is our community groups. And so uh, some of you guys already joined us for our community group meeting this past week, and our community groups just kicked off. It's not too late. If you haven't signed up, uh, if you haven't joined one, please uh, do so. It is one of the joys of my life to be able to share my life with brothers and sisters and community groups. Um, but this time, this uh, community group term, we're going to be using a book as the guide um, 
that will lead our conversations. And so if you uh, haven't yet, in, if you look at the back, we have a table with a book called Caring for One Another. And we ordered, we ordered a bunch of copies for you. If you wanted to take one for a small donation, you can pick it up at the end. And this will be the book that we'll be using as a curriculum, if you will, this term. Lastly, in the third uh, stool <laughs> or leg of the stool, if you will, uh, of a discipleship here in Trinity is equip classes. Um, Bobby mentioned it quickly uh, and very briefly, but we do have a, a couple of equipped classes that are coming on. Our journey class, if you're not yet a member, if you want to be part of this church, we would highly encourage you to come and hear what Trinity uh, is about. Uh, so please sign up today. Uh, and the second one is our rhythms class. And I wanted to just speak about this shortly because in this class, we're going to be exploring together how to plan our lives and how to orient our hearts to or towards the presence of God. I know as a believer, I've been a Christian for my entire life, basically, almost. Um, and I still struggle when it comes to the disciplines of prayer, the study of the word and stuff. And so if that's you, which I bet most of you are, I would encourage you to join us. Uh, sign up today, join us and be here and take advantage of these means of discipleship. The Lord uh, has these things for you as a gift. So take advantage of them, okay? And so with that, I would like now to... Turn to the Word, and so would you guys open your Bibles in Psalm number 46. Psalm 46. As you guys are turning to Psalm 46, I wanted to uh, tell you, uh, when I was 10 years old, I had the, the opportunity to go as a 10-year-old boy. I, I went to Canada, to Toronto, Canada for the summer. I spent a couple of months there with family members um, that I love, and, and I just had a blast. Uh, that's why I you know, basically, I think that's one of the places where I learned to speak English, so I'm super thankful for my time there. But one of the great memories I have from my time in Toronto was the, the day that I was able to go see the Blue Jays play baseball, okay? This is at the time when I still enjoyed watching baseball, and uh, it was shortly after the Blue Jays had won the World Series, so they had an amazing team. I was, I was able to see big names like Roberto Alomar and Joe Carter play that night, and it was awesome. Even if they lost to the Indians that day, I really had a blast. Now, one of the reasons I really enjoyed going to that game, though, was because the game was actually in the famous Sky Dome Stadium. If you're not familiar with the Sky Dome, it is now called the Rogers Center, uh, but I refuse to call it that because that's a boring name. I think Sky Dome is just absolutely great, and so I'm going to refer to it as the Sky Dome but some of you might be familiar with this guy, Dom. Uh, in 1989, the Blue Jays moved to what was at the time one of the most impressive stadiums. Uh, the reason this guy, Dom, was so famous was not only because he was at the base of the CN Tower, which at the time was the tallest building in the world, but also because he had a, a roof that would open and close. In about 25 minutes, the, the retractable roof would open or close. So it was great, because if the weather was nice, um, the roof would be open, and you could watch a baseball game, and in the background you would see the CN Tower and all its glory, and beyond the CN Tower, you could see the night sky, you could see the moon and the stars. But if the weather was bad, you could just close that roof, and it was pretty cool, okay? And so uh, I loved going to the Sky Dome. It was a big experience for me as a 10-year-old. But well, you may be wondering, why in the world is Christian talking about baseball stadium architecture this morning? <laughs> well, the reason I wanted to bring it up is because, you see, 
the author James K.A. Smith helpfully uses the sky dome as an illustration of the state of our minds today. You see, when the sky dome's roof is open, you can enjoy a couple of things at the same time. You can enjoy the game going on in the field. And if you're like me and you, you know, baseball is maybe not your cup of tea, you can also look up at the night sky and look at the glory of God that the heavens proclaim. Now, no matter how much, how much you like baseball, if we had to decide what is more glorious, baseball or the heavens, I think we would always choose the heavens. But when we're in a stadium, we are often so enthralled with the game that we can easily miss the stars. Next month, I get to go fight the idols of my heart. Uh, <laughs> I get to go put them down I'm, because I'm going to uh, the Orlando City Stadium to watch Orlando City play against Messi, who is dear to my heart, my favorite player. And to be honest... You know, this, if you haven't been to the Orlando City Stadium, it's an open stadium, you know, it rains, we're in trouble. But here's the thing, there's no roof in the Orlando City Stadium, and I got to tell you, I doubt I'll be doing much stargazing that night. Because you see, I mean, unless you count Messi as a star, which I do, but, but here's the thing, as a society and as individuals, I think that this is us. You see, we are so taken by the things that are immediate, by the things that are down here, that we forget that there is so much more than just a simple, immediate world. We are so focused. I would say we are hypnotized by the things of the world that we forget of the glorious God we serve and the reality of the spiritual world of which, of which we're part of. We are so distracted by things like social media, TV, your phone, and other attention suckers. But we're also focused on the good and important things in life, like our jobs, our families, our dreams and desires. And these things have made us blind of the spiritual reality that's around us. Smith again says this. He says, like the roof of the Toronto uh, sky dome, the heavens are beginning to close. But we barely notice, because our new focus on this plane had already moved uh, the transcendent to a peripheral vision at best. We are so taken with the play on this field that we don't lament the loss of the stars overhead. Church, the problem with living in a world isolated from a spiritual reality is that when the roof of our hearts is closed off to the reality of God... The problem with that is that we start believing the illusion that we are in control of our own lives. If there's no God in sight, we become the center. We start believing the words of William Ernest Henley, who in his famous poem said this. He said, I am the master of my destiny. I am the captain of my soul. And as poetic as that may sound, this kind of thinking ultimately causes us to see ourselves as God, doesn't it? Now, you might be wondering, well, that's kind of cool to see myself as God. Is that nice? Sure. The problem comes when pain and hardship come our way. See, if you think you're God, if you think you're in control, all it takes to knock you off is the reality of life. When life inevitably pulls a rug from under our feet and things get difficult... 
When things like that happen, and if our hope is anchored in ourselves and not in something greater than us, this leaves us in a miserable place of hopelessness. You see, living in a society that sees man as the master of his destiny ultimately leads to hopelessness and unhappiness. This happens because when we leave God out of the picture again, even if we wouldn't put it this way directly, we see ourselves as God. And the problem is that we make pretty terrible gods. In the face of danger, in the face of suffering, we are quickly reminded that, we are no, that no matter how great we think we might be, we're not enough. Just look around you. Just look around you and you'll see how even if we live in the most prosperous time in history, in the most prosperous nation in the world, loneliness, unhappiness, and even suicide are on the rise. This vision of the world where we are at the center of all things is not working out. We are an increasingly unhappy people, a hopeless people. And the passage we're about to look at today is meant to blow off the roof of our lives so that we would be awakened to the reality of the spiritual world around us, primarily to the reality of what it means to be a child of God, what it means to follow God. So let us pray that the word of God would open up our eyes this morning and help us see the things that truly matter in this life, the things that are ultimate and eternal. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, this morning, and we ask, would you speak, O oh Lord? Would you speak to our hearts through your word, we pray. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear. Father, I pray that as we turn to your word, that your word, Father, would challenge our hearts, that it would open Lord, the roof of our minds, that we would see what reality is truly like. Heavenly Father, I pray that if there is anything that I say this morning that comes from my own understanding, anything that I'm making up, Father, anything that, is, that doesn't align to the truth of the Word, I pray, Father, that it would fall down and be forgotten. Help us, Lord, be people with discernment, people of the Word, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me as we read Psalm 46? This is the Word of the Lord. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river, a river whose streams may glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. Amen. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war seas to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. And this is the word of the Lord. Church, you may be seated. 
So this is a famous psalm, and this psalm is actually a really interesting one, because even if it seems like it was written in response to a specific military crisis, we don't know for sure which military crisis that that was written for. But as a psalm, we know as believers that this song is applicable to the life of every believer in difficult circumstances. This song has become a song of encouragement for Christians throughout the ages. And I pray that today, this psalm would be of encouragement to you. As we read it, again, I want you to notice that there are three clear sections. And each section is a loud declaration of who God is. And each of these declarations is punctuated by the word Selah, which is an invitation for us to consider. For us to dwell on that for a little bit. For us to consider what it means for us today. And so the first thing I want to say this morning, my first point is this, that our God is present even when the world around us is falling apart. And we can see that in verses 1 through 3. And I want to read them again. And I want you to see verse 1 says this again. God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, uh, the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. As I mentioned a minute ago, this psalm was written during a military crisis. It was written at a time uh, of a military siege uh, threatening the Israelites. But man, is this song a beautiful song of encouragement today. This song starts with a strong declaration, a confession of who God is. God is a refuge and strength. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that this is our third message in our summer psalms. Uh, And as Tim mentioned uh, before, this summer we're focusing in psalms of presence. And this first stanza that we just read points us to a God who is not only present, but who is very present. The psalm starts with the words, God is our refuge and strength. Notice that it says God is our refuge and strength. It doesn't say that God is our provider of refuge, though he is. He's not just like a landlord or a parent that provides a place for safety. He doesn't point us to safety. He is our safety. God is our refuge. Our safety is only found in God himself, not in anything that he provides. Church, this speaks to the security that believers find in God. Because we believe in a good, benevolent, and almighty God. So when things are hard, when life spits on your face, you can remember that God is your refuge. So run to him. Secondly, the psalmist says that God is our strength. I want you to notice that our strength is not found inside us, but outside of us. As countercultural as this idea may be, this is great news. Because this means that our strength is not dependent on our abilities, our power, or our ingenuity. Our strength comes from God. And this is good news because we all know how truly limited we are in our own strength. Church, when the rug is pulled from under our feet, it doesn't matter how strong we think we are. We need something greater than us. Someone who, can, who we can trust to take care of us. 
And the word here tells us that we have that. We don't have a something, but we have a someone who is strong in our stead when we are weak. I don't know about you, but as a weak man that I am, this is such good news. The psalmist not only tells us God is a refuge and our strength, but he is also our very present help when the world around us is falling apart. Church goodness and his power are honestly not that helpful if he's not present. Here we are reminded that our God is not only present, but he is very present where we, whether we see him or not. There are those in the world who think that, yeah, there might be a creator, but he doesn't care about us. He created the world, he kicked things into motion, and he walked away. But that's not the word of Scripture. That's not the God that we see here, the God of Jacob. He is very present. He's very present this morning. He's very present in our good times. And he's very present when we're in trouble. And this is such a good reminder. Because if I can be honest, there have been times in life where I felt that God wasn't really that present. There have been times and seasons in my life where I look around myself, where I look at the circumstances around me, where I look at the things that have happened to me, and I'm tempted to believe that I've been left alone. But this text is helpful precisely for moments like that. You know, our feelings are fickle. Our feelings are unstable and subjective. So we need to be reminded of the objective truth of God's word. We need to be reminded of the words of his, of his revealed word. Church, we, he, here we have a text that we can hang on to when our circumstances make it seem like we are alone. So brother, sister, I know statistically, in a room like this, there are some of you who are going through it right now. There are some of you who may be surrounded by a world that is going crazy. I mean, that's all of us. But for some of you, though your own world, your life may seem like it's been coming, like it's coming undone. But can I remind you, God is not far from you. He hasn't abandoned you. He is not indifferent to your circumstances. He's present. He is very present. So don't let your circumstances blind you from the reality that God is never far from you. He never has been. Church, the Bible is filled with verses similar to this one. Precisely so that we would not lose hope during our seasons of trial. Church, it does us well to be familiar with the Word of God. It does us well to marinate in the Word, to memorize it, so that in our time of need, these verses, verses like this passage, would become the pillow on which we rest. You see, Isaiah 41.10 says this, it says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Deuteronomy 3.18 says this. It says, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear 
or be dismayed. Matthew 28, 20. This is, these are the words of Jesus in the Great Commission. He says, he says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Church, what a beautiful promise of presence we have here. Church, God is not only present, but he is also not indifferent to your pain. He knows how broken this world is. He knows your pain. And he offers himself as your refuge and your strength. Eric Orland wisely says about this, he says, God, the one person who most clearly sees what is wrong with this world, is the one person who promises he will not let it stay this way forever. Brother, sister, God is present. And he wants to be your help. He wants to be your fortress. So run to him this morning. This leads me to the second point which is this, our God provides for us even when the nations rage around us. And I want you to look at verses 4 through 7. It says this, it says, There is a river whose streams may glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God will help her when, her, when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. This section is a really interesting one because it first focuses on what the author calls the city of God. And it focuses on the bliss found within the walls of the city of God. You see, the theme of the city of God is not unique to this psalm. As a matter of fact, if you keep reading the following psalms, it'll talk about the city of God. It'll talk about Zion. In other parts of the Old Testament, we hear about the city of God. But what in the world is the city of God? From what Scripture uh, says, or the way that Scripture portrays the city of God, the city of God is not a physical or geographical location, but it represents the spiritual community of believers who have been redeemed by God and gathered together as His people. Church, the city of God is you and me. We, the children of God, are citizens of the city of God. Based on the language of this psalm, St. Augustine, in his book, The City of God, famously divides the world into two spaces. The city of God and the city of man. And Augustine helps us see the contrast between the spiritual and eternal reality of God's kingdom and the temporal and fallen nature of the earthly realm. The city of God refers to the spiritual reality, like I said a moment ago, of the community of believers. Your spiritual reality, if you are in Christ. In the city of God, its citizens are those who who have placed their faith in God and His redemptive work through Jesus Christ. The city of God is characterized by, by righteousness, by love, and worship of God. And the ultimate goal in the city of God is to seek the glory of God and to find eternal fulfillment in him. The city of man, on the other hand, represents the earthly and temporal city. The world you and I see see around us every day. And this world is characterized by fallen human nature and the pursuit of worldly desires. Its citizens are those who do not submit to God's rule, but uh, they live for themselves and in rebellion against him. When we read this passage, 
It is as if the roof of the skydom is open up, is open up in our minds because we are able to see and we are reminded that you and I, we walk in two realities. We are part of two realities. We are citizens of the city of God and we are simultaneously surrounded by the city of man, by this broken world. And about the city of God, verse 4 says this. It says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And the first thing I want you to see uh, of this city is that um, it's the fact that God is present in a city. God makes his holy habitation in the city of God. It is the, the, the place where God lives, if you will. You see, God is not only transcendent, he is, he is transcendent, he is high, he is lifted up, he is holy, and he is separate. But God is also imminent, Amen. meaning that he is close to his people. He calls himself Emmanuel, God with us. You see, the God we serve delights in being close to his people. And because God is present, this means a couple of things for those who live in the city of God. It means, first of all, that God is our provider. You see, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And guess who that river is? That river is God himself. He is our source of life, of peace, of provision. While the waters of the world rage and roar... Like we read in verse 3, the river in the city of God is a source of peace and blessing. The second thing I want you to see is that God is our protector. Another benefit of God's presence in the city of God is that it makes this city an unshakable city. Because God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. And thirdly, God is our helper. The second part of verse 5 tells us this. Um, it, it says, God will help her when the morning dawns. Here the author restates what he said in verse 1. God is our helper. David Mathis, the author says this. He says, God's help does not mean that his people are kept from crisis, but that he keeps us through crisis. And I want to make sure that you don't miss this. Because when we speak of the city of God, we're not talking about a philosophical concept. Right. We're not talking about a place somewhere out there. Right. This is talking about you. Right. And this is helping us see the reality of God in our lives today. The things being described here are true for you and for me. Right. For those of us who are in Christ. The city of God is the spiritual reality of the children of God. Now what's interesting is that in verses 6 and 7, the author zooms out from the city of God and we realize that the city of God, this beautiful city, appears to be under siege. Around the city of God, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. But in the midst of all the chaos, the inhabitants of the city find peace and comfort because God, because God is with them and because God is their fortress. Do you hear this, church? What this means for you is that as you live in this broken world, even when things are falling apart, even when the people around you are going crazy, no matter what the news tells you, no matter how bad inflation gets, no matter what is going on at work, no matter who gets elected as our next president, 
For those of us who are in Christ, we can always find peace right. and stability because we are citizens of the, of the city of God. When we stop fixing our eyes on this world and look up to the spiritual reality that is true of us today and always, it is then when we will find peace and calm. Too often, we're so taken by the city of man that we forget we are citizens of a greater place, the city of God. We forget our hope is not placed on the things of this world, on the circumstances around us. Church, our hope is not dependent on present circumstances, but our hope is on the promises of God, on the fact that he's sovereign over all things and that he will one day reign in victory over his enemies. That is why we can confidently confess with the catechism, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but we belong to God. We are the city of God. And this leads me to my third and last point. Our God reigns sovereignly over all things. And I want you to see that verses 8 through 11. It says, Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. This last stanza points us forward. It is a glimpse of the future. It's a spoiler, if you will. It's a reminder of what we have to look forward to. Sure, the world around us is raging. And yes, it's a mess, and it is concerning. But ultimately, as the children of God, we get to trust Him. Amen. And we get to rest in Him. See, we rest in the fact that God is ultimately in control of all things, and one day He will say the words of verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. This morning, I don't know, I've gathered not a lot of you guys like soccer, but this morning, the U.S. women's, oh, am I spoiling it? I'm so sorry. Well, something happened this morning. There was a winner and there was a loser. I'm not telling you who won. But here's the thing. I've already seen the end. You haven't. Tonight, as it's replaying on Fox Sports or whatever, you and I are watching that game differently. Because I know the end and you don't. And for one of the teams, that's good news. For the other one, not so much. Here's the thing, church. We already know the end. We already know that victory is assured. And yes, the world is a mess. But we still trust because we know the end. The the story has been spoiled for us. You see here, we see, remember a minute ago, we talked about the nations raging. Here we see God in authority, who says this, Come behold the works of the Lord. 
He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. God puts an end to the raging of the nations. He says, be still and know that I am God. Church, this is a declaration of power and authority. Because at the sound of his voice, the nations will stop raging. Now, I don't know about you, but I always thought these words were said only to the people of God. I used to, you know, because we see them in posters. We see them on bumper stickers, coffee mugs. Be still, I know that I am God. So I always thought, or I read it kind of like a sweet mother soothing a child after a nightmare saying, shh, 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 be still. Mommy's here. It's going to be okay. But here's the thing. This is also a statement of authority from the king of the universe to the nations that rage. This is a statement of authority to his enemies. And he says, be still and know that I am God. Just stop. You see, God is in control of all things. And when he allows evil, even if it's only temporarily, evil and suffering have an expiration date. Because God is redeeming all things for himself. One day, he will say to his enemies, be still. Time's up. I will reign. And with these words, God will accomplish victory. Now, depending on where you stand with God, these words can be a source of peace, joy, and comfort. Or they can be terrifying words. For the people who know God, these words will bring us peace. They give us hope for what is to come. But for those who oppose them, these are terrifying words. Do you see this? This is the God we serve. A God who by the power of his word puts an end to the raging of the nations. And this assurance of victory helps us trust in the face of despair. Eric Ortland again, puts, puts it this way, and this is a bit of a longer quote, but I want you to lean in. He says, The world is both far worse and far better than we ever suspected. The chaos and evil that God tolerates, but only for a time, is far more frightening than we thought. If we could see it up close, we would have a hard time keeping our feet. But God's assurance of victory is far, uh, far calmer and happier than we ever suspected. This, not, this does not make the world any less frightening or the chaos it represents any less foreboding. Cancer and car accidents and human trafficking are still awful tragedies. None of us is entirely safe. But when God sees the whole of the world's evil, of which we can only get a glimpse, and he speaks of his future victory with a calm joy, we too can engage with God's sometimes dangerous world not just with courage, but with joy and peace. God is not intimidated one iota by the evil that could easily swallow us. So we don't need to be either. Church, this morning I hope the words, be still and know that I am God, would blow the roof of our spiritual lives. That he would help us be reminded of the realities of our spiritual life. 
that we serve a God that is sovereign above all things. And when we know that we serve a sovereign God who is with us and for us, who is in control of all things, and who has already declared his victory, it helps us navigate the challenges of this life. It helps us find peace when the world is freaking out. Be still and know that I am God. Are you hurting this morning? Be still. Be still. And in the stillness, remember you are not God. Remember that God is in control of all things. Are you far from him? Be still. And in that stillness, remember you are not God. You are limited in your power, in your ability, in your influence, in your wisdom. Lay down your weapons and turn to the God of the universe who is calling you home. I know not everyone here might be a Christian. I know not everyone here may be following Christ. But even if I don't know you, I know that in your heart of hearts, there is this strange homesickness that you don't understand. In the words of St. Augustine, again, a restlessness in your heart, if you will. There's this, this homesickness, this restlessness. And this restlessness will be there until the moment that you find your rest in God. So can I invite you this morning, as the nations rage, as the world is coming undone, would you be still? Would you lay down your weapons? Would you take a break from trying to control everything? Would you, would you lay it down? Would you give up the idea that you are the captain of your soul and turn to him who is calling you home today? Come home to God. To the God who will one day be exalted among the nations. The God who calls himself a fortress and who wants to be your very present help in time of trouble. Church, I really hope this passage has opened our eyes to our spiritual reality as children of God. We are part of his family. We are part of the city of God. We are part of his kingdom. The question now is, how do we respond to this truth? I'm glad you asked. Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29, and I'm not going to have it on the screen, but if you open your Bibles in Hebrews 12, 28, 29, it says this. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Church, we respond with worship and obedience. This morning, as Tim mentioned earlier, we are, uh, we, we are uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper. If you haven't yet, grabbed your emblems there in the back. Feel free to go and grab them. But as we transition to communion, I want to remind you that there was another time when God uttered the words, be still. 
In the New Testament, we find the story of when Jesus calms the storm. We see that, uh, that Jesus was crossing the Sea of Galilee with his disciples in a boat, and he decided to take a nap. While he was sleeping, a storm breaks out, and it must have been a pretty wild storm because his disciples, who were fishermen, who were comfortable with the water, were absolutely terrified. You see, his disciples were freaking out and woke him up, accusing him of not caring. At that moment, Jesus woke up and with authority declared, Peace, be still. And at that moment, the storm stopped. You see, the same Jesus who calmed the storm in the Sea of Galilee wants to calm the storm of your soul today. The same Jesus is calling you home. But not only is he calling you home, he has also made a way for you to come home. And this morning, as a church, we get to celebrate and to remember that he has made a way. We celebrate and remember the sacrifice he made so that we could be reconciled with God. And so at this moment, we're going to celebrate communion. But I would ask this morning, if you are not yet a believer, would you abstain from participating this morning? But as you abstain, if you're not a believer yet, um, would you observe? I want you to observe this. I want you to participate by observing because what we are about to do is a beautiful celebration of what Christ has done. This is a holy moment. We call this a sacrament of communion because as we do this, we are communing with Christ himself. He is present. This is a moment when we get to proclaim the sacrifice of Christ, which was a prize he paid to redeem all things for himself. And in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26, we see this. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So would you take the bread this morning? Would you pray with me? Father, as we eat this bread, we remember the body of Christ, which was broken for us. Thank you, Lord, for paying the price for us and giving us new life. You may partake of the bread. Verse 25, it says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so, Father, we remember the blood spilled at the cross, which reminds us of your covenant. Thank you that by this sacrifice, we were made yours. And so, Father, we partake of this cup now. Heavenly Father, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming, Lord. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise 
we have that you are with us always and the promise that you will one day come back for us. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Church, let us respond to the word in worship. Would you stand with us? And would you respond with us in worship and song?